Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Before sunset is over, baby, you are going to miss that plane. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. All right. I think of it like this. Um, uh, jump ahead 10, 20 years, and you're married. And only your marriage doesn't have that same energy that it used to have. You start to think about all those guys you've met in your life and what might have happened if you picked up with one of them. Let me get my bag. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. 
they are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I can't believe you're here. Well, I live here in Paris. I wanted to talk to you for so long, you know, then now... Me too. How long do we have? 20 minutes and 30 seconds? No, Let's we got, go. <laughs> no, we got more than that. Now they have one afternoon to find out if they belong together. I remember that night better than I do entire years. Do you look any different? I do. I'd have to see you naked. What? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on that boat. Come on, it'll be fun. You don't have time! Oh, God, why don't we exchange phone numbers and stuff? Why don't we do that? Past is the past. It was meant to be that way. What? You really believe that? I have these dreams. I'm in the car, and a buddy of mine is driving me downtown, and I'm staring out the window, and I think I see you. What does it mean, the right man? The love of your life? The concept is absurd. The idea that we can only be complete with another person is evil, right? I'm just happy to see you, even if you've become an angry, manic-depressive activist. I still like you. I still enjoy being around you. Like if somebody were to touch me, I would dissolve into molecules. Let me see if you stay together or if you dissolve into molecules. How am I doing? Andy, it's before lunch, sunset. I mean, dinner, supper. <laughs> I have real trouble with the names of this series. I really, really do. <laughs> it just doesn't click with me. Well, it's, it's one of those ones that I wish that they had just continued and every, you know, they would have to keep coming up with other things. Like, what is this one going to be before? Yeah. Before Monday. Like, I assume the next one would have been before noon. Because it was before midnight, so now you do you before know, noon. We're really going to lean on, on on before EOD. Before the, they got to do the opposites, yeah. Before the meeting, <laughs> uh, we are talking about number two of the Before trilogy, um, and we're back with Jesse and Celine and uh, our dear Linklater. This time in Gay Paris. Yes. 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 So, um, it, the, our our pre chat uh, today was dedicated to legacy sequels, and Andy tried to convince me this was an important term that I need to integrate into my vernacular, and I threw just a little bit of a fit. But I think it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, and how would people uh, access that, Pete? I I think if you want to hear it, you need to become a member and just uh, head over to um, uh, TrueStory.fm/tnr-membership or thenextreel.com slash membership. Uh, that'll go to the same place and sign up and and join us. You'll get a live, you'll get to be able to join us to, for the live stream of the show. You'll get to hear uh, the episodes early and uh, ad free. And we invite you to do that. You can also join us in the chat room during the live stream and share uh, your uh, thoughts in the chat as we talk. Right, because also, as you share your thoughts uh, in the chat room, we also do a post-show chat where we'll answer some questions. So there's... Ah. So much, good, good, so much conversation. Good nod. Yes, good catch. So, legacy sequel. This, uh, the. Do you want to define the term legacy sequel for for the people? Yeah, I mean, the legacy sequel is essentially a. Uh, I mean, how did we kind of describe it? It's a sequel that. That follows, uh, here it is on Wikipedia, a legacy sequel is a work that follows the continuity of the original work or works, but takes place further along the timeline, often focusing on new characters with the original ones still present in the plot. Right. There are also sometimes direct sequels that ignore previous installments entirely, effectively retconning previous preceding events. That's in things like the new Halloween trilogy. This one is uh, a, a sequel that apparently in the intervening years, uh, nobody was really begging for. Apparently, the studios weren't really begging for it. But as I understand it, Linklater and uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Del- Delpy really, really loved that original story and really, really wanted to see what happened next and and worked on that together um, to make this movie as a continuation of their story in a way that uh, that honored the the sort of real story that of of these two people and and find out what happened did they meet six months later how did their lives change how did their relationships change and i think that there is something about this um you know as a as a legacy sequel i say in heavy air quotes that this was the same team that really wanted to continue this specific story we're not introducing any new principal characters it really is just these two people exploring each other's lives again through conversation and and you know a, a walk through paris 
And I'll tell you, I like it a lot more than the first. Yeah, I I love this one just like the first. So uh, it's uh, I have a great time with it. I love these characters and uh, I enjoy spending time with them. Um, this film was rated R when it was released for, uh, here in the States at any rate, by the delicious MPAA for language <laughs> and sexual references. Again, it's all that sexy talk. All the F words. They drop so many F words. All so many F words. Sex oh and that. Goodness. Oh, that MPAA pisses them off. Over it. How dare you? Uh, um, all right. Uh, so, Andy, we're back. We're back and we're in Paris. Yeah, shifting locations. And we open at a book signing. We do. This is. It's an interesting setup. So... Uh, I mean, this film, you know, it takes place, it, it was released nine years later, it takes place nine years later. So it's it's real time, essentially, as far as how it was set. Um, you know, we we are now meeting Jesse. He is at a book signing. He's written a book called uh, This Time, which is essentially about his time with Celine in uh, the streets of Vienna from the first film. And, and so he's kind of adapted his his journey that he took there and what he learned and everything and wrote a book and uh, obviously is doing well enough where his, uh, the publisher is giving him an international tour. And here he is at the last stop in Paris at uh, the Shakespeare and company bookshop. It was a fun way to kind of start things off with him at this book signing with uh, the different, uh, you know, people, um, asking him questions and, and kind of getting some perspectives from, you know, was this real or not? I, I liked the way that it, it set up Jesse and, and the questions with the group. What'd you think? I did too. And I, I think, um, you know, I like the way he is forced to sort of dance around the reality of the situation, knowing that, and, and the way he couches it in, um, you know, the language of, um, you know, what are, all authors are molding from the clay of their lives. And I, I think that's a really um, a, a solid way to put it, both in the context of this movie and this trilogy being based on, you know, Richard Linklater's uh, experience and um, actually, um, you know, telling us the story of these two people and letting this exist in and demonstrate the the power of that single relationship and that it had on his life that um, he ends up, you know, telling the story of of his passion. And I think that's a that's that's great. It also is a, a kind of a last time in the before trilogy kind of a setup that reminds us of where we've been because we get these great questions and and ask the question did did you meet in 6 months and and you know all of those are great reminders to set up this movie based on the first movie so i think as a utility scene it works really really well because it it gets us up to speed quickly on where he is in his life and efficiently and in an interesting way well it's it's fun listening to him dancing like i think ethan hawk does that very naturally where he's trying to answer but not answer the questions and he's trying to yeah. kind of avoid them and shift things and and when they're asking about the six months and it's always that like you know, that that game that he plays with them. It's like, well, you know, okay, you're the romantic. You think they do. You're the cynic. You think they don't. You're not sure. And I, I like the way that he's playing off of the their reactions to all of it. And I, I think that's a good way to kind of uh, keep that vague. And, you know, there is that great moment where he looks over and actually sees Celine off in the wings, just kind of watching him and and gets flustered and almost breaks and and kind of loses his his track of things and i think you know i don't know i feel like he knew she had lived in paris he didn't know if she was still in paris or not but i think part of me um likes to believe that, that there was this element that you know he tried to work to have the the tour end in Paris with the hopes that that this exact thing would happen, that she might be there and um, it might be a chance to reconnect. Like, I feel like there was that deep unspoken hope of his that that this moment would actually happen. And I like that when she suddenly is there, it really does kind of throw him because it 
even though he might have been the romantic in him might have been hoping it i think the cynic in him was still like no there's there's no chance that you know this would actually happen what are the odds what are the odds? And I like the the way that nine years has actually made him more more of a cynic, that so much of the conversation that ensues in this movie is kind of a rebirth of his romantic side at, as a result of running into her. But nine years has been like he has had to sort of assign his inner romantic to the pages of this book. Yeah. I mean, he's married with a kid now. Yeah. 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 Like he, he's not allowed being... to have that anymore. He's like, yeah. I have to this <laughs> this is what that is. And now I have this life. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I, I think that's an important um uh, an important note, right, in terms of his character development. But then, you know, as you say, she's in the bookstore and now we meet her and we get to um we get to experience her experience of reading the book about her in this romantic way. Now, this gets to the principal thing that I think is better about this movie than the first. That the first movie was exploring yeah, just it, there's just a lot of nonsense. And this movie they're exploring the reality of their lives with a connection to that last movie. And even though I didn't like the last movie, uh, I think as a, as they have become sort of more mature adults, they have something to talk about that's a shared experience with me. It makes this sequel better. I, I am more interested in them reminiscing about their perspectives and about the his life as an author and her life uh, as a uh environmental advocate um then it, you know that that is just i'm more compelled by by having something to talk about uh than just their philosophy on romance which was a snooze like this this actually felt more like plot well you say it was a snooze but remember you that's because you are closed off to that part of your life but you have to remember, like, they were young people. It was very much kind of that conversation that early 20-somethings were having because they were still trying to figure out, like, yeah. what is out here in this big life? And so it was very much that, you know, let's find ourselves and let's explore and let's do everything. And it was very – it was much more, I suppose, a whimsical view on kind of that exploration of – of life and everything. And and that's what I think was so uh, for me still so magical and and fascinating about that first film and it makes this film even better because now you're watching and I mean just exactly what you just said. They've kind of grown up and now they're in the realities of life. He is a married man with a kid. She is working to save the environment. Very passionate and a uh, vocal um um you know proponent of doing that. And so they have very much positions now. And yeah, and, and I think that was a period in their life where they both kind of had these plans and, and dreams. But now I think that there's there is a, this perspective for both of them that I think um, does have a really uh, powerful shift. And I'm glad that for you, that's something that you are, you know, it's something you're able to kind of connect to more now. Yeah, well, and, and I, I don't think we can we can have that conversation just based on these two characters because without saying that I find both Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke's performances as now a decade more grown up people better. Like I believe what's coming out of their mouths more than I believed what was coming out of their mouths uh, in the first movie. The first movie actually felt performative to me. This one feels more authentic. It feels more weathered. I think they're able to deliver the, these these like long strings of conversation and long walks and long you know restaurant conversations in a more interesting and compelling way because they have a decade of like work under their belts. Um, so I. I like them better as as actors and also as people. My big question is, is it because do I like them because of their greater influence, as I understand it, on the script than in the first movie? You know, they had influence on the script in the first movie and this one they're, you know, co-credited. And as I understand their writing process, very much involved with creating the voices of these characters for this sequel. Um, and so I, I wonder just what, you know, where in the mix is it that that makes these lines that they deliver um, much more solid to me than the first movie? 
It's going to be very difficult to really pin that down because like even with that first film, like Julie Delpy said, we essentially like Ethan and I essentially kind of crafted those characters like we are uncredited writers on that first film. Um, and but we really spent a lot of time figuring out all the dialogue and everything. And I mean, obviously, Richard Linkletter, Kim Crisen were the two credited writers on that film credited as story here. Um, but I, I it's. I just don't know exactly, like, was that just because at the time they were just actors and so they didn't have a chance of getting any sort of screen credit as writers, but for the second film, they they were a little more uh, firmly established and uh, were able to kind of get that credit? I'm not exactly sure, but so I, I feel like that's really difficult to pinpoint. Um, all I can say is, you know, everybody working on this film is nine years older and they all do have that that maturity that is instilled in time passing. And so there is an element with all of them that they've kind of grown and matured and figured things out. I mean, by this point, I know there's a lot of dispute about how much of Ethan Hawke's own divorce from Uma Thurman was kind of incorporated into uh, his character of Jesse. I don't know if he really, really brought that in or not, but certainly, I mean, there is, I mean, he's a character in the film who is, struggling in his relationship with his wife and isn't sure it's going to work then you find out hey he's divorcing uma thurman (laughs) so clearly there was some form of struggle in their real life and so i think they all had you know there's that wisdom that comes with age and I, i think you put nine years onto not just the two of them, but also richard linkletter and i i think they're all going to bring a little more to the table well, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the reasons why. And I'm I, I, uh, not advocating that we try to figure out like what the pie graph is in terms of what makes this a, a great movie. But I, 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 my assertion is this movie is inseparable from these performers playing these characters, because I think you're right. I think so much of Jesse's character is absolutely influenced defined by his relationships this movie is practically like reads to me as therapy you know for you know their relationships in real life and that's that's exactly where it's coming from and not only that Ethan Hawke as Jesse makes that case in the bookshop in the beginning, right? Just as writers are molding from the clay of their real life, so are actors. And so are these actors in making this movie. So I think this movie is is the sum of all of these parts. And that's what ends up making it making it special, that we have now adults that are more interesting, that actually have a foundation that they've built on. The foundation I didn't like so much, you did. This one, I think, makes makes good on the promises that the original movie was never able to make good on for me and in that respect i think it is um it, it's it's quite a little a little gem well and that's what i really enjoy about what richard linkletter as a filmmaker continues trying to do you see that with things like this and boyhood where you know he's he's not just exploring a story and a film but he's like in some ways, he's kind of like the documentarians behind like the 7-Up series, you know, where he's like, right. let's explore these characters, but let's actually do it in a way where we can kind of continue looking at them over time. And so the fact that they did this and then a, a third film nine years afterward. So you have this 18-year exploration of these three characters at three points in their life. You really get a sense of what that is like and what that means to a relationship from the beginning to I, – I, I don't want to say the end. I haven't seen the third film yet, but, but – I like the way that there is that exploration and boyhood filming over 12 years where you have, you know, people actually growing, including Ethan Hawke, who plays the dad in that film, um, over that whole period of time in the context of the film of a kid growing uh, from, you know, through his youth. And I, I think that's a really exciting way to explore film and to use it as a medium that, you know, uh, when you look at, at the different axes where he's, you know, he's not just incorporating um, you know, the the axes of time within the film itself, but also within our own lives and and kind of expanding on on that in ways to to look at things that are much larger. And, you know, there aren't a lot of filmmakers who do things like that. And and as a filmmaker who's done a, a you know, he's danced a lot between independent uh, kind of um, less mainstream films and and some more mainstream films. I like that he is one of those people who does kind of continue finding ways to explore. 
it's an experimental independent film in that in that way and i think it's um i think it ends up being touching uh paris moving us to paris um you know the last film was in vienna yeah shifting things up and now we're in paris what'd you think what'd you think of how they used uh, paris as our landscape for this conversation you know when the film starts it uh, it starts off with just kind of some spaces and locations and things, and you're getting a, a, a sense of the place, kind of like he did with that first uh, film, where he shows you the different spaces uh, more at the end of the film, like the next morning. This is kind of what they look like. The magic's kind of gone, but the places are still here. It's a little bit reversed here, where you kind of start with some of these places. And and then, yeah, we follow them on kind of an, a lazy afternoon as they walk around. I enjoy that. I, I don't know. I, I think that there is a proclivity when you're filming in a place like Paris to say, what are the iconic places that we have to show? Let's get the uh, Arc de Triomphe in there. Let's get the Eiffel Tower in there. Uh, uh, I mean, we have Notre Dame. That is kind of a, a backdrop that we have through parts of it. But largely, they avoid forcing us into that uh world and instead it feels like we're just kind of walking through a neighborhood and i really liked that sense like the first conversation from the bookstore to the cafe it just like you're just kind of going down these little side streets and as they kind of meander and i really liked that we had that uh that tone to this world of paris you know i liked that it just felt um uh, I, it felt really grounded. I, I don't know. I, I, I liked that sense of it. I did too. I, I think it was uh, actually, it, it made the one super touristy thing that they did. The joke landed well for me because everything else felt so grounded when they got on the bateau mouche and, and are taking their little boat trip down the, down the Seine. I thought that was really funny because everything else is just them really experiencing their time together then they get on the boat which is the most touristy thing you can do in paris and so i thought that was i, I thought that landed well for me because it also allowed us to kind of see you know more of of what they were experiencing and the level to which they're able to ignore the touristy stuff even while they're on the boat like i think that the conversation on the boat was interesting um you know we do get some like you already mentioned shakespeare and company uh that sort of classic left bank bookstore which is uh awesome uh they they wander kind of a long way i i didn't like map it on google maps but they were they were pretty busy in terms of where they ended up, uh, it, you know, even notwithstanding the fact that they got in the, the car for a little bit and ended up back in her uh, apartment. Um, so I really liked that Paris wasn't, a, you know, wasn't so big of a of a thing. Um, I kind of missed the level of uh, sort of heart that they gave Vienna that that final sequence was so strong I know they couldn't have have just sort of recomposed that in Paris but I didn't get a sense that uh, any of that sense in Paris as they, as I did in Vienna in the first movie I thought that was the end of this of our experience with that city was so powerful well yeah I I, I definitely think so and it, but I, I, yeah I think that's an interesting element with this one where it feels more about them and I, I, maybe that's in that one. There's this sense of the nightlife and the youth. I mean, also, you know, as somebody who's aging, I do feel like that whole idea of like up all night going to all the clubs and stuff. I'm like, yeah, that definitely is something that you do more when you're in your 20s. <laughs> you know, and now I'm yeah, like, for sure. oh, God, it's already after 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. It's like, put me to bed. God, and no, thank you. It's, I know. It's just, I'm. I, it's so funny how that that reaction certainly happens. But now it's just like, yeah, like yeah. these two, it's just an afternoon and, and they're a little more grown up. It's like, yeah, I don't need to do anything crazy, especially, I mean, this is him. I mean, she lives here, so the city isn't as magic for her. She says the Parisians are all grumpy. And for him, it's like this is the 12th, the, the 10th city on a 12-day tour. So, I mean, he has had just like nonstop going from country to country, from city to city, and hasn't really had a chance to take a break at all. And this is really the only chance that he's getting to kind of sit down for a minute and relax. And here, you know, it's, he's just kind of taking this this walk uh, and this trip with her. And so I feel like this makes it much more about the people and less about kind of the fact that they're in Paris. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there something to that? 
that you think that makes sense? Because the third film, I, I mean, I haven't seen it, but I believe that they're in Greece or something. Yeah, another European right? so city. It's, it's another, yet another stop. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm with you. I haven't seen it yet, but um, it, it feels to me like what I would expect as an adult is that the third one, they're not walking around at all. Like they're in a house <laughs> just hanging around talking with some booze because walking is exhausting and they've walked for two straight movies. <laughs> like, let's just go find a couch and a couple of bottles of wine. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but I think you're exactly right. And I think that's that's another way to sort of diminish the importance of uh, of Paris as a as the setting because they're both in such different places with it. Like, what really matters is the fact that they're there, and um, and that's what gets them there. Speaking of what gets them there, uh, I th we have to address the elephant in the room, which was the end of the first movie and the promise to meet up six months later. How did you think that played out? I love how it plays. I think that it's it's it's... I mean, when he asks... I mean, they kind of talk about it, like, you know, before we go on... Were you there? And she brings it up because she had every intention of actually being there, but couldn't because of, you know, the fact that her grandmother passed away. And that was the day of her grandmother's funeral. And she feels incredibly guilty about it and has carried that guilt with her all this time. And and I think the fact that both of them, like he was there, as we find out. And although I love the way he kind of plays it like he wasn't there, it's fine, it's totally fine, only to reveal later that he was actually there, uh, speaks to the fact that there was this real connection that the two of them had, and they really did want to see, is this something that could work? And And I find that... The fact that both of them had every intention and he kind of like it didn't happen for him. He was there. He was writing all those little notes, as he said, and everything. And and uh, like, I, I feel like it speaks to the sense of his kind of that sh that mental place that he is between romanticism and cynicism of if that would it could actually be anything. And I think uh, for somebody who was more of a cynic, who kind of, you know, was able to shift a little more romantic in that first film, that probably pushed him into the cynic space and where his life path went, uh, even though there is still that romantic element in here, which led him to write the book. I, I find that, uh, I don't know, I, I find that so perfectly crafted in the film. Yeah, I think so, too. And I, I love that, like, I struggled a little bit with the initial conversation where, um, you know, she she asked him, were you there? And his response is, were you there? Which is exactly what I think would ha I, I might have said in the same scenario, but um, but is kind of nonsense, because if she was there, they would like they're just trying to dance around the fact that he might have been or it feels to me like he's trying to dance around the fact that he might have felt more strongly than she did. Uh, you know, knowing that he was there and didn't see her and that somehow their relationship was out of balance and that he was the he was the thirsty one and she didn't actually care after that one night of passion. And I really liked the way that that the conversation starts out of balance and comes into balance as he learns the truth and she learns that he was really there waiting for her. And um, I, I think that's, um, you know, bringing that that sequence between them into balance is her getting over the heartbreak of knowing that he was there and him getting over the embarrassment, potential embarrassment of knowing that he was the one who felt strongly. And I think that was really powerful. Um and and funny and clumsy. And I think this Ethan Hawke, nine years later, Ethan Hawke is able to play that as Jesse in a way that I don't think he would have been able to play it as nine years younger, kind of goofy, romantic Jesse. So and it still shows, I think, both of these characters, we still have room to grow. And that actually makes me end this movie feeling strong about going into the third movie. Part of me wanted to just hit play right when it was when this one was over and see where they end up, uh, uh, you know, in the next in the next film. I think that's a real testament to what this movie is, that I was drawn to see where these characters are going in the third in the third film. Yeah, yeah. We do have, speaking of all the walk and talks and long restaurant scenes, we do have some more long shots in this movie. Did you happen to to do any of your Cinemetrics, your favorite website Cinemetrics research? I certainly did. I knew you would. Yes. Cinemetrics. Yes. The average shot length of this film, 10.2 seconds. Which is shorter than the first one, right? Barely. 
barely shorter than the first film. The first film, the average shot length was 10.8 seconds. Here, 10.2 seconds. So very, very similar as far as the average Mm -hmm. shot length. Uh, The big difference is the maximum shot length. The longest shot in that first film, as you may recall, was on the bus, I believe we determined. And that was almost six minutes of them riding around on the bus. Uh, So there's a very, very long uh, take. Here, we have two long shots. Um, They're both about three minutes long, two and a half, just, you know, between two and a half and three minutes long. So, and and they're walking through the streets. The first one is after they leave the bookshop as they're walking uh, toward the cafe. And then the second one is, I believe, after they leave the cafe as they're walking uh, and end up on the boats. So, um, those are the two points in the film where uh, we have the longest points of conversation with them. So a thing that I didn't notice and only discovered after the film was over and I started reading about it was that this film purportedly takes place in real time, that the duration of time that they are together is the time that uh, that that we are that the film takes. Does that make sense to you? Um, it does. Uh, you know, if, if you think about the scope of the film, I mean, he's got very little time to kind of, you know, before he has to end up at the airport and uh, the the sense of it being kind of a summer. It's got that kind of late afternoon because I think, you know, he's supposed to be at the airport by 730, I think is what they're saying. And it's a still pretty sunny out. And so, um, yeah, so it makes sense. It does make sense to me, but, you know, the fact that the time elapsed in the story is the runtime of the film is it's interesting to me that I didn't like it didn't feel gimmicky to me. I didn't even notice it like I didn't think about it. It didn't didn't cross my mind that we were with them, but that that was part of their intention of making the movie Um, and the way they made the movie, I think, was interesting. And and the fact that it, it felt really effortless and made me want to go back and kind of experience it again with that idea that they, you know, that they were running the movie with the intention of of making us feel like we were in the same space by putting us in the same time as Celine and Jesse. Yeah, there are elements that I feel like, I mean, because this film isn't even 90 minutes. I, I think it hits 80 minutes almost. And so I think to that end, you know, there's there's a little flex in that. Like I'd say, okay, if I were to guess, I'd say it probably takes over two hours as far as the real time of the film. But again, you know, in in context of trying to make a film that's largely real time, I think that they mostly do it. I think it works pretty effectively. Well, what's interesting, what becomes interesting in that and the places where it feels awkward are like the cafe scene. My I would have expected them to be in the cafe the for 90 minutes, like catching up and drinking their coffee and smoking their cigarettes. But in the movie, that cafe scene, I wanted to be out of there like that was too long for me. I was so done being in that location and the back and forths. And I I was just ready to start walking, like, take me, take me someplace. Uh, And yet it felt like I, I get what they were going for. It was interminable speaking in movie terms and probably too fast speaking in, you know, real time terms. They were probably not there long enough. Well, but in, but in the scope of their conversation, like they, they actually make the decision to get out of there to go do something else. Like, I can't remember specifically, but it's like they, they've, you know, hardly had their coffee and suddenly they're like, oh, we should do this or whatever, you know? And so, yeah, we're I in think a hurry because you're going to miss your. Yeah. So it feels natural. Like it didn't feel like we had been there sitting 90 minutes or something like that. It, it felt I, I don't know. I, I found that it worked pretty well. Well, that's what I mean. Like that sequence of all that was my that was my note that. The scene in the coffee in that coffee shop was way too long. Um, and I feel like the rest of the movie, once they got out of the coffee shop, it it broke up the conversations with enough different locations that worked very well for me. But man, did it feel like it, I was bogged down in coffee shop talk. I was just ready to be out of the restaurant. That's interesting. I feel like we were hardly in it. So it's funny that you think that. Yeah. I feel like they sat down, they got their drinks finally, and then they were leaving. I was like, oh, then they were oh done. That, was, that was quick. <laughs> I did like the fact that there's this whole sliding doors thing that comes out of their conversation, especially that we learn that Celine lived in New York. And because they had never exchanged any method of communicating with each other, not only did they miss one another in Vienna, they also missed the fact that they lived like, you know, a couple of blocks away from each other. At least we get the hint that, you know, Jesse's 
stomping grounds were two blocks away from where she lived uh, because he felt like he saw her but was going crazy. And I thought that was really great. Like the the like that is a that's an element of the story that would be very hard to tell today because of the way we have phones and technology and all of that. Like that's a that's such an an antique kind of um of a missed opportunity that I wonder, like I didn't watch this with, with my kids, but I wonder if they would appreciate that at all in an era of find my, you know? Yeah. Well, or, or just, you know, stalking people on Facebook. Like if yeah. this had been more modern, yeah, they would have already looked up like what is, well, uh, although they do say they didn't know each other's last names. So that would have made it a little more difficult. Like he's like, I didn't even know what your last name was and whatever. So it, that wouldn't have even been believable, right? In, in, if it were told today, like how can, you even imagine telling the story and not having some connection to identity? I think there's because well, because here's the thing. And this is something that I felt like you probably appreciated quite a bit. The fact that they call themselves out as being idiots in the first film. They're saying, like, God, what idiots we were. Like, why didn't we exchange? Like, we were trying to be so cool about, like, yeah, this is going to be, if it's going to be natural yes. or whatever. And, like, they call themselves out about that. And I thought that was great that they're like, we're such idiots. I, why didn't we just exchange numbers? It would have just yeah. made things so much easier. And we could have, you know, had a, you know, kind of connection this whole time. And, and I thought that was really yeah. genuine that, yeah, like they acknowledged, like, you know, what kind of romantic fools were we back then but uh, I, I and and to that point about all of this is like i think you could do it in today's world and i think the way you would do it is like you'd have these two characters in a situation meeting like this and again ideally it's going to work best if they're young and kind of idiots and and they do make these romantic choices where they're like no let's let's not tell each other our real names let's just have this romantic experience and this is going to be it and realizing how much they actually connected, like that's that would be the way that you would do it nowadays, where they connect, they don't say anything like who they really are. And so they're unable to find anything out about them, even if they do try to search. That would be the way that you would have to do it in today's world. Well, you know me too well. Absolutely love when they call themselves idiots in the past movie. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, there, There is another scene that I thought was particularly good and human and uh and, and I love it as a as an old guy now. The fact that they have this conversation where he remembers and she does not remember the fact that they had sex in the grass is chef's kiss perfect for me. I absolutely love it. And how strongly he feels about that memory and the fact that it takes her a long time to come around to that experience. How did that hit you? I thought it was very funny because, again, that. I think that does a few things. It plays well to um, individuals' expectations of what something, how something that you remember, like what what it meant to you and your expectation that it's going to mean what it meant to you to everybody who was involved. And so for him, it was like this hugely important thing. And for him, he was the guy who showed up and thinks she didn't. And so here she is like, yeah, I, I, I was going to show up and stuff. But then she's just like... I don't remember that at all. And I, I found that to be very funny that, uh, you know, playing off of that idea that, you know, it's going to be something that she may have just forgotten or blocked. And, and the way that it plays is great, especially because she reveals later that she totally remembered all of it. And it's just this thing that that women do, as she says, you know, I, I thought that was actually really funny in the way of kind of, um, you know, just shifting our expectations. Well, absolutely. And it leads to this whole passage where he's talking about breaking up with somebody that, you know, his little speech about, you know, the you know, the worst thing about breaking up with somebody. Is when you remember how little you thought about the people that you broke up with uh, and you realize that's how little they're thinking of you. That message permeates the entire movie, and I think artfully so, in such a way that even the sex scene that, you know, he's thinking about this sex and it mattered so much to him, and he realizes that it, it you know, she was able to put that away and compartmentalize it in a way that he, that really surprised him because of who he, he is. And that whole misappropriation of importance of relationship beats is, is a real message in this movie. And I think that's uh, their conversations. I think um, end up making this whole thing really very special in that light for me. I, I think it's I think it's 
I think it's great. I think that message is important. And it, it feels important to these people at this point in their lives. Um, so that it's part two in the trilogy is is great. It's finding those sorts of uh, truths that they're exploring in um Again, we've kind of already alluded to it, but potentially in their own real lives, Ethan Hawke's, Julie Delphi's real lives, but also in these characters' lives as they're growing up and figuring things out. And I, I really found those sorts of um, moments to be powerful as they're having these realizations. Um, it's it's yeah, strong stuff. Uh, we have to, of course, talk about the end of the film. Okay. The, the way that final scene is captured where he ends up back at her place there you know the the neighbors are all getting ready for like a little you know neighborhood barbecue sort of thing or something like that she takes him up to his place she plays this song for him which is about him very sweet little song which is something that julie delpy actually wrote and then she turns on some nina simone and she's kind of dancing and playing to this nina simone stuff it's it's incredibly just kind of sweet the way they're kind of connecting and bonding and she has that line baby you are going to miss that plane and he just says i know it yeah. is yeah it is it's great so, is, is that a warning oh or a God. threat right oh come on like <laughs> i think that's really great like i'm about to keep you here from from missing your plane or if you're not careful you're going to miss your plane that's a those are different sentiments and she captures them both the way that both of them are like lingering and afraid to kind of end this whole thing, I think they're both acknowledging I'm not ever going to make that. And this is that final come. It's the words are finally coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I'm staying. This is it. We're we're in this together, baby. Now it's perfect. So and, and, you know, lest we forget, I, you bring up the song, which I think is really important because it's the payoff to the, the the setup that was given to us at the bookstore, that he wrote a whole book about their relationship and wasn't certain about how she felt about the relationship, only to get to the very last few minutes of the movie and hear that she wrote a song about their relationship. Like they that once again brings the equation into balance. And I, I think that's really great. The fact that that we assume that they end up staying together um, is provocative <laughs> leading to the third movie, right? Is our expectation that they, sh I mean, I already know that it takes place another nine years later. Is our expectation that they stay together for nine years or is this just another, like, I love the idea that there's a lot of uncertainty in what happens next. Yeah, and, and also I think, you know, we're, we also need to remember at the time they did this, um, I mean, they had been talking about, yeah, we're going to do another one. I mean, I don't know if we really are, but we really, I think Julie Delpy said, I can't imagine not doing another one. I mean, it's an interesting position. And we've talked about trilogies in the past and the idea of, you know, the inevitable third story. But I feel like when you have this one and it ends this way, I don't know, I feel like it could have just ended here and this would have been it because we would have had this final resolution over these two films of now Jesse and Celine are finally you know, following the romantic path and they are ending up together and, and they're going to make a life together. Yeah. Now, my expectations of a third film are what does life look like now that Celine and Jesse have actually started crafting this together? And is it what they were expecting or are they finding, you know what, maybe it's not what we thought it was going to be. Right. How do adults handle that experience together? That's yeah, what I'm set exactly. up for. That's the yeah. question. Right, right, right. All right. Uh, anything else hot on your list? I don't think so. Uh, I think we're good. So with that, uh, we'll be right back. But first, the credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Serge Quadrado. Oriole Novella. And Eli Catlin. Anti usually finds all the stats for the awards and the numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. All right, Andy, how to do with the award season? Uh, the film did better for itself than the last one did. Uh, I think probably the fact that they're, by this point, 
uh, all of the people involved had had, um, you know, a lot going on with their careers to a point where they were more recognized. So this film caught on better. It had nine wins with 32 other nominations. At the Oscars, it was nominated for Best Writing for an Adapted Screenplay for Linkletter, Hawk, and Delpy, uh, but lost to Sideways. Over at the Empire Awards, Delpy won Best Actress. And at the International Cinephile Society Awards, an interesting thing that I hadn't heard of before, it won Best Picture and then came in second place for Best Screenplay right behind Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay. I, you've just named two movies that I would still put on before this one. Those are definitely great, great films. Sideways is an interesting one that's also about characters and stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure actually between the two anymore what I would pick. I think that they're both quite, quite strong. Over Sideways? Yeah, I, they're, both of these films, I think, have incredibly strong character work. Yeah, it's very strong character work, but there's just a lot more movement in Sideways for me. Well, we're still waiting on Sideways 2. We are before Sideways. The legacy sequel. <laughs> Straight up. Okay. Straight up. Uh, okay, how about at the box office? For a movie that uh, nobody was begging them to make, did they make any money? For their return to the world of Jesse and Celine, Linkletter had a budget of $2.7 million, which is almost $3.7 million in today's dollars. That's actually less than last time. The movie opened July 2nd, 2004 in limited release, opposite the only big-budget movie that week, King Arthur, along with another of other limited releases, The Clearing, De Lovely, and America's Heart and Soul. This landed in 22nd place, but maintained a buzz that kept it busy enough at the box office to keep it in theaters for 19 weeks. It went on to earn $5.8 million domestically and a surprisingly high $10 million internationally for a total gross of almost $21.6 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 223000 almost four times that of its predecessor. All right. I mean, that's not a, that's not a bad take. And I feel like it's justified because it's a better movie. <laughs> That's that's my that's the line I'm going to draw. It's it is it, they're both great films. They're both great films. It's just this one is about more mature people and I mm-hmm. think that's why you connect to it more. I think so too and you connect with children. So okay. <laughs> and I am uh, just a grown child. We all know that. <laughs> Outstanding. Um okay, well, I think uh I I think we've we're able to put a fork in it. I want to move on to the next movie. Yeah. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings of this one. But first, here is the trailer for next week's movie, the conclusion of the trilogy, Before Midnight. Oh, we said we were going to stop. They wanted to see the ruins. Yeah, but should we wake them up? I don't know. You know what let's do? On our way back to the airport, we can catch them. Hmm? You know we won't. Yeah, probably not. Okay. And how did you two meet? We met about 18 years ago. We kind of... Sort of fell in love. And a decade later, we ran into each other. No, no, no. You wrote a book, and I read about it and went to look for it. Oh, it's pretty romantic. If we were meeting for the first time today on a train, would you start talking to me? Would you ask me to get off the train with you? Of course. Well, this place is so full of thousands of years of myth and tragedy, and I thought something tragic was going to happen. It's still there. It's still there. Gone. You never stop ogling girls. Like. I don't ogle girls. I make love to them with my eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm stuck with an American teenager. I feel close to you. Yeah. But sometimes I don't know. I feel like you're breathing helium and I'm breathing oxygen. What makes you say that? I wanted you to say something romantic and you okay? okay. You are the mayor of Crazy Town. Do you know that? You are. This is how people start breaking up. Oh, my God. I assure you, that guy you vaguely remember, the sweet romantic one that you met on the train, that is me. Why am I finding myself yes. so attracted to this woman?
All right, Letterboxd, Andy. We're going to do Letterboxd. Uh, you know Letterboxd. It's the very best social network for movie lovers. If you want to get your own pro or patron membership at Letterboxd, just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. It'll take you right over to your checkout page and you can uh, get your upgrade to Letterboxd Pro or patron for 20% off. And this works for renewals as well. What are you going to do for this movie in your Letterboxd account? I genuinely that was, really, the, that was a big sigh and a big delay. So it makes me think you're really struggling around <laughs> this one. Well, I, I I am in the sense of like, am I calling this just a straight up five star film? And because the last one I'm like, is it four, four and a half? I landed on four and a half. And this one I'm like, is it five? Maybe it's four and a half. Um, I I just I really love everything going on here. Um, I'm just gonna call it a five star film. I think I'm gonna do that. Five. Did I hear that right? I, 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 five stars? Yeah. That's where I said. That's big. All right. Well, I, I just, think last I, time I, I just was, love it. What was I? A two star and no heart? You were two stars, one? no heart. Yeah. Yeah, because it was dumb. And now you locked your I youth have, in the box I like a gimp around. with a ball gag in his mouth. <laughs> That's right. The as gimp. I recall. That's right. The gimp is still in the basement in the box. And this time, uh, I I enjoyed my time much more with this movie. I am uh, landing on. Uh, I'm even going to give it a heart with four delicious Parisian stars. Wow! Probably some sort of a, a bread, a star-shaped bread. <laughs> R-shaped. Well, yes. certainly, if you're buying it off of the streets of Paris, it's going to be delicious. Yeah, for, for sure. Sure. Four and a half stars and a heart is where it's going to land over in our Letterboxd. Uh, you can visit our site at uh, letterboxd.com slash the next reel, or you can reverse that. Go to the next reel.com slash Letterboxd, and you can get your patron or pro membership. Again, it works for renewals as well. You know, uh, Pete mentioned our membership earlier in the show. If you want to learn more about our membership, you can go to the next reel.com slash membership. You get ad-free episodes. You get them before everybody else. Uh, you get all sorts of bonus episodes. We do a monthly member bonus episode. We do a flick chart re-ranking episode. We do a retake after the series where we kind of look at the series as a whole. And uh, you get more access to different parts of our Discord community in our Discord uh, server. So, Again, go to thenextreel.com slash membership. We'd love to have you join us over there. So what did you think about Before Sunset? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. <laughs> I don't even I didn't even look myself because uh Brian in the chat uh posted the link to this five star review that I started laughing. I had to mute myself because I started laughing out loud during the show <laughs> as we were recording it. I should not have been doing that. It was like chewing gum in the classroom, but uh I I love it. Do you, do you mind? I don't even know how to do it. It's almost like a performance art piece. I don't know how it was, how it was <laughs> I'm written. I'm excited. Uh, but the it's uh, it's from Siobhan. It's five stars before sunset, who says, um, Jesse, colon, I'm far from being in love with Celine. And then it's, it's like a map, stage directions. I don't know how Siobhan was able to do this, what symbols uh, and like emoticons are being used, but it's essentially a red pin and then parentheses, two minutes walk, and then a, a line of symbols indicating a path to another red pin. And the caption is dropping his whole life to be with her. So in two minutes, he drops his whole life to be with her. And that is, it's a visual gag, which doesn't work for a podcast, but it works for me, especially because in order to see this on Letterboxd, you have to click through that says you're okay with spoilers. <laughs> I thought that was such an awesome gag. <laughs> yes, I'm far from being in love with Celine. Two minutes later, I'm dropping everything in my whole life to be with Celine. <laughs> Five stars. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. That is hilarious. Well, I've got a, uh, a four and a half star review from Tim Cop, who has this to say. <laughs> Turns out I've never had a conversation before. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's right stuff. you never that's know stuff. you yeah, don't know right. until you know well that was delightful thanks letterboxd 
I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.